You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the House and our events on our website. Whenever there is a new novel from the hands of American Jennifer Egan, you may ask yourself, what is it she has come up with this time? Through her critical acclaimed body of work, she has surprised readers with every book, changing project, genre, and style. No wonder the New Yorker summarized her writing in these words. Egan is a realist with a, spe- a speculative bend of mind, a writer of postmodern inclination with the instinct of an old-fashioned entertainer, known for her rowing, unpredictable imagination. My name is Lynn Rottem, and I work with the artistic program here at the House of Literature, and I have the immense honor of welcoming Egan for the second time at the House of Literature. When Egan visited us the last time in 2012, she was here to launch a visit from the Goon Squad, who played with punk rock and became a huge success. I'm sure many of you in the audience have read it. It was also awarded with the Pulitzer Prize, among other prizes. With her new novel, Manhattan Beach, beautifully translated into Norwegian by Kira Haugenbakke, Egan has once again captured readers and critics worldwide, also here in Norway. This time she enters the more traditional historical fiction story, The Great Depression and the Second World War, with correct. Um, with characterizations from the noir fiction landscapes. Egan's interest in technology, American society, and the passage of time is something common for several of Egan's books, also Manhattan Beach. It is a walk through complex layers uh, and borders of history, society, and culture painting intimate portraits of two unconventional characters living in a time before Egan herself was born. Tonight, Egan will give you some glimpses into this unique universe, and she will do so in conversation with one of her enthusiastic readers, writer and psychiatrist Finn Skordru. Please welcome them both to our stage. Thank you. I brought some books, <laughs> and we have got you, um, and we have about an hour to discuss your authorship, your books, but welcome back to Norway. Thank you. It is a delight to be here. Yeah, and I know that you're going far north. Yeah, I've always wanted to stay in an ice hotel, so we're finally yeah. doing that. Mm. Um, and yes, we're going to do some ice fishing and cross-country skiing and hopefully see the northern lights. So rather icy then, yes? Yeah. Lynn mentioned your new novel. I think we should definitely talk about that. But I would also like to go back to your last book, because in a way you do quite different things. Uh, that was a kind of genre-breaking uh, experiment, in a way. Uh, now you have turned back to, in a way, a very classical linear form. Uh, 
say something about to help us to understand what Manhattan Beach is? Well, I mean, I... I never really know what form things will have. What I what I usually have at the start is a sense of time and place. With Goon Squad, I mean, I had already been doing a fair amount of experimentation with structure before I got to that book, but in a way, that book just came about almost accidentally because I thought I was just writing freestanding stories. I have to just say, I interviewed you six years ago concerning that book, which uh, is from the Goon Squad. The Norwegian translation, uh, Bølle på døra. I think Kyre, the translator, had a challenge there. Bølle på døra was from the Goon Squad. I asked you why you were writing it, and you say you were trying to avoid to write another novel. <laughs> yeah, that Manhattan Beach. So that's Manhattan Beach. So we tried to avoid it for a while, yes? Yes, mm. and so I was, I was avoiding it by writing what I thought were freestanding stories, and then when I realized that they, it felt like it was actually one project and it was a book, um, and I thought actually that it was going in a, in a steadily backward chronology. So that was actually something that I didn't know. I, I, had, I had that wrong as I was working on it. But I thought, okay, so if this is a book, what am, I gonna, what am I doing here that seems fun? And how can I keep doing it? And so it was kind of a simple list of things that I was doing. Each chapter was about a different person. Each chapter had a different kind of mood and tone and technical approach. And each chapter stood on its own. And so I just kind of bumbled along. You know, I had hits and misses. Um, you know, there are things that I wish were there that aren't. And so it felt to me like the best I could do. Um, and in fact, the PowerPoint I added after I sold the book. That was kind of a late, um, a late last minute element. Um, and and so you know, the, so the structure was was very organic, um, but it wasn't. It wasn't really conceptual from the very beginning in that I kind of got into it by accident. So with Manhattan Beach, I, I thought since I had been working, I had been researching Manhattan Beach in one way or another since about 2005. And in some ways, I think some of the thinking about time and I, I spent a lot of time interviewing people um, in their 80s. In, in the first decade of the 21st century, looking back over their lives and turning them into narratives for me and for others. Um, I helped work on an oral history project, which was, which was a lot of fun. I think in some ways, Goon Squad and its preoccupation with time, to some degree, were inspired by some of those conversations and that habit of, of thinking about the past all the time. Um, so with Manhattan Beach, since it is set, you know, before my lifetime, and because I had been fooling around with all these different structures at that point for years and then praised for it, <laughs> I thought, well, of course I'm going to keep doing that because everyone likes it. Um, and I guess the minute you have that thought, it's really time to just stop doing it. Um, because what I found was that it actually did not work in this book. When I tried to play around structurally, it, it fell very flat. It seemed to kind of undermine the power of the narrative rather than heighten it. So that's obviously not what you want. Um, and I, I, I saw that quickly. I, I could even tell that my own interest in it seemed to really flag when I was drawing attention to the fact that we're all you know, in the present day pretending that we're you know, in the past. Um, 
And so, you know, in a way, the structure of Manhattan Beach, which is definitely more straightforward, it felt like the only way I could do what I was trying to do. And it just felt like anything else was getting in the way. Um, and what I found, especially with radical structures of any kind, is that they only work if they are the only way you can tell that story. That is it. Anything less, and it's a gimmick. Um, and so, the, you know, for example, the PowerPoint chapter of A Visit from the Goon Squad it sure looks like a gimmick. Um, I mean, I, I would be pretty suspicious if I sat down and started reading a chapter of fiction in PowerPoint. But in fact, PowerPoint is, it lets me do some things in that chapter that I think I couldn't have gotten away with if I had been doing it conventionally. One is it's very, uh, it's, a, it's kind of um, very sweet. It's kind of overtly sweet. You think PowerPoint is sweet, yes? Uh, no. <laughs> that, no, PowerPoint is the opposite, and yeah. that's how I got away with the sweetness. Absolutely. PowerPoint is cold yeah. and corporate. Yeah. Mm. Um, and, and so initially, when I knew I wanted to use PowerPoint, I thought, oh, well, I'll have a corporate person tell the story. Yeah. No, it got colder and more corporate. Mm. But, but it, because the narrative is sweet, and in fact, very little happens in that chapter, but it's almost impossible to convey action in PowerPoint. So anything but a rather static story would, would have been impossible to, to write in PowerPoint. It's a totally atomized form. There's no continuity. So that was a case where I got to do something that I couldn't have done otherwise. Yes, something about limitations, because I find it a very poetic chapter, writing a chapter in PowerPoint. Because it's a lot of constraints in it. So yes, it, I felt that too. Yeah, yeah I, I, I felt that too. And I also love the fact that text could float without any particular order mm. to it. Mm. Um, and that was uh, something that is you know, basically impossible to do in a linear narrative. It is linear. Um, so it certainly let me do some things I couldn't do otherwise. Uh, but it, it, finding a story that needed to be told in that way was really the trick. And I, I tried a lot of things. Mm. The reason I sold it without a PowerPoint was I hadn't found a way to do anything in PowerPoint. Um, and it's not like anyone was missing a PowerPoint. Uh, and, you know, no one had... I, I don't think anyone would have thought that was an especially good idea. Um, so I'm, I'm, so, but I do have my eye sometimes on structures mm. that are of interest to me And the question is always, can I find a way, not just to use it, but to use it to let me do something I can't otherwise do? Yeah. So after making a short book in Twitter, in tweets, you turned to uh, the Depression years in uh, New York uh, and the Second World War. Uh, main characters, uh, Anna. Uh, turning into one of the first Navy divers uh, in the United States. Actually, and she's a civilian diver. Yeah. She's not in the Navy, yeah. but yeah. But she's an undersea diver, uh, and her father, who has disappeared in strange ways, and a person connected to organized crime. Say something about why choosing this scenario. <laughs> um, well, I didn't. I can't say that I exactly chose it no. because my method is so much about the feeling of discovery for me. Mm. So if I'm choosing something, that's already a sign that something's not working right. 
Um, so what I tend to do is I start with a time and a place, which was New York during World War II, let's say. And, and then, why that? Pardon? Why that? I think probably it, it had to do with 9-11 mm. and having been in New York then and mm. feeling how instantly the city was transformed and how militarized it felt. Um, but, I, but, but it may not have been that. I, I don't quite know. I just had a sense of wanting to... In a way, it's not so much a sense of wanting to use a particular time and place as wanting to be in a particular time and place, because that's really more what the experience is for me. Um, and then I basically... I mean, I had done some research, as I said, I was interviewing people, you know, long before I actually started to write Manhattan Beach, which was not until 2012. But once I sat down to write, I didn't really know who exactly would be in the story. Um, but it, but that, that became clear pretty quickly. Uh, and so, you know, I'm, I'm sort of always watching and kind of listening as I write by hand in a very automatic and impulsive way with the first draft. I'm, I'm looking for stuff that seems interesting and fun, um, but I'm never quite sure what exactly it will be. Uh, and so that's really... It. But, but quickly it became clear that there was sort of a trio of major yeah. characters, two men and a woman, um, and, or a, a girl, actually, at the start. Uh, and, uh, and I felt... I, I like that symmetry. I, I, I tend to skew toward the male. You tend to skew to the male. Yeah, say something about that. Yes. Um, well, <laughs> well, doctor, uh, <laughs> maybe you should tell me. <laughs> tell more about that. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Um, well, I think what it is is that because I don't, I, I don't really like to write about myself at no. all. Um, and I do it poorly, and I don't like to write about people I know, and I do that poorly. So I'm looking for ways to separate what I'm doing from me, and there's no quicker way than to be writing from the point of view of a man. I mean, that sense of discovery and of being delivered out of my life yeah. is so keen when I'm writing from a male point of view. And I'm always trying to, in a way, I'm trying to get as far away as possible from my experience. So, By being a male, yes? Well, ma being a male is one way of doing yeah. that. Mm. But just as a general rule, that's mm. kind of what I'm looking for. So mm. I think that's probably why. But, you know, in recent books, with Goon Squad, adding the PowerPoint at the last minute made it 50-50. Mm. Up until then, it was more male. Mm. Um, the Keep, which is the book before that, almost entirely male. So I felt like it was... I wanted to write a book about a woman. I really thought, I want to do that. Um, and I, especially about female strength, specifically. Female strength, yes. Mm. So I kind of knew that I was, I was hoping that I would find a way to do that in this book. Mm. And then I, I could feel the importance of her father mm. somehow, and I could feel this other person, this uh, kind of organized crime... It was kind of gangster. Yeah. Um, so I, I sort of knew that those... I, I sensed that those three would be there, and then everyone else was really a total surprise. She's a tough girl and woman, in many ways. Anna? I would say so. Yeah. Definitely tougher than I am. Yeah, um, yeah she's, she's very... Um, she's able to hold on to a view of herself that is not routed through other people's views of her. I think that's... Uh, I was talking with someone today, and I, mm. I hadn't really thought this before, but I thought that's really what is, I think, most uh, kind of surprising about her, in a way, um, that she's able to 
hold on to an idea of herself that, is, that remains firm despite points of view around her. I think that's hard to do. <laughs> it's hard to do, and many would say it's not at least hard to do today in many ways, yes. It mm. may be so, and, and I mm. should say that, you know, mm. you asked why I was drawn to New York during World War II, and mm. I, I think maybe the catalyst for that interest was um, 9-11, but once I was working on the book, I found many joys of being in that time, mm. and one of them was th a different moment technologically. I mean, pre-internet, pre-television, oh my God. It was fabulous. <laughs> they so can't could, I just move there permanently? You could write uh, internet-free novel, actually, yes. I know. Yeah. It was a delight, let mm. me tell you. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I think I, I just wanted relief from all of it. I yeah. think we all mm. want relief. Mm. And because I feel that technological acceleration, telecommunications acceleration has been probably to date... You never know with America right now. I was going to say the most shocking thing, the most uh, kind of unusual story I've witnessed as a human. Um, we'll see what I say at the end of the day. But, um, but for now, you know, having been born in 1962 and going to college, so 18 years later, not a single telecommunications development that I was aware of. You made a phone call, it either rang and rang and rang, or someone answered it, or you got a busy signal, period. And when I first told my children that, they said, one of them said, was there electricity? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, to go from that to this, to, to have had nothing happen, of course, things were happening, I just didn't know it. Um, when the answering machine came along, that seemed like an incredible development. So that, that is just, it's, it, just when I think, okay, I'm really tired of all that, there's nothing more to say, everything's changed again. There's always more to say. So that's, I end up being preoccupied with that because I feel like that's something I've been in a position to witness um, in, a, in a very extreme way, given where I started. And so I end up writing about it, but it was nice for a change. I think we'll be back to that because it's also so central in uh, the book before this, but... Back to Anna, uh, you say she is not so occupied what they're thinking of her, but they are thinking a lot about women at that time. I mean, they should do so and do so, and they should be working in the house, they should not be divers, for example. So where does she get her strength from? Well, I mean, who knows? That's one of those things that is, it's, I think it's always hard to know. Um, but... I agree. I mean, I think one thing that was, that was fascinating about writing about women at that time is that there were, well, it was an, it's an amazing time to think about female mm. experience. More amazing than I knew, actually, when I was drawn to it. Because, you know, in America anyway, there's a narrative that everyone knows growing up, which is that, you know, women had these amazing opportunities during the war and they did things that no one thought they could do, and then they were forced back into the kitchen by a propaganda campaign. Um, but, you know, in the end, there was no way to kind of re... Uh, kind of recompartmentalize all that energy that had been unleashed. And yet, that narrative meant nothing to me. <laughs> I mean, I knew it, but it was only when I was working on the Oral History Project and interviewing, for example, a woman named Ida, 
who was a welder at the Brooklyn Navy Yard, and she was a really good welder. So she was about 87 when we spoke to her, and she talked passionately and sensually about her welding and how good she was um, and all the things she had to learn. And she became rather senior, and she was very um, in demand at the Navy Yard because she was very slight and, and strong and kind of... Uh, limber. So on ships, well, at first women weren't allowed on ships for the first couple of years, but then they needed the women on the ships because ships are very constrained, uh, tight environments. And so these more limber people with great expertise were really useful. And so she became a wonderful welder and she became a supervisor and had seniority. And then all of the women were fired even before the war ended. Uh, and she was a working class person and need, still needed to work. And so she naturally thought, I'll weld. I'm incredibly good at it. And she would go to apply for jobs and she was laughed out of offices. I mean, talk about whiplash to go from, you know, that kind of seniority and power and authority to being an object of contempt and mirth in the span of six months. Um, so the, I think those kinds of stories made that narrative alive for me in ways that it had not been. And in fact, it's really led me to want to think about the women's rights, to think about the 60s counterculture and the civil rights movement and the women's rights movement, the ways in which uh, those were a kind of explosion of this frustration and, and power that... that um, that arose during the war, that were kind of invited into being. Um, I'm interested in thinking about all that again from a, more, from a closer perspective. So you are inventing these characters, uh, but there's a lot of things that we don't know about Anna and the other characters. In some way there are secrets, it's a bit enigmatic sometimes. Is that proposal the way you do it? I mean, we have to guess, we have to think, we don't know everything about these persons? My goal is always to tell the least possible. Yeah. Because the whole undertaking of fiction writing is compression. You know, you're trying to, even in a very long book, I mean, let's say In Search of Lost Time, okay? That's, no one would argue that that is really, really compressed. <laughs> but if you think about all that Proust does mm. and the many people whose stories he follows almost from beginning to end over you know, an enormous swath of history that includes the First World War, if you think about all that he does, it's an incredibly short work, really. So it's always this, this goal of trying to suggest far more than is actually there. So if I feel like I've basically got it, then anything, any, I don't, I'm not interested in just restating. So I guess what I feel is if, if, if we sort of have a sense of someone that feels full, I'm comfortable moving on and trying to do other things that I haven't done yet, relying on our shared sense of that person to hold its own so that I can try to do more. So in a way, it's a kind of playful investigation then. I mean, you're... Always. 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 It's, I mean, I, I feel like curiosity is really what motivates me. So good. Mm. Absolutely. I mean, mm. that's it. Um, that's why I don't want to write about myself, because there's no, that's sad, isn't, there's nowhere for my curiosity to go there. Um, it's sad to hear that you're not curious <laughs> about yourself. <laughs> is, it, is it true? <laughs> um, gosh, it does sound kind of sad. Um, 
I, I am not that curious about myself. Yeah. Mm. I don't think I'm that interesting. Mm. Um, I, I would much rather think about other people. Now, you could, of course, say, well, that's just solipsistic because you are yourself, so you're thinking about yourself via other people. I don't know, maybe. I like the illusion that it has nothing mm. to do with me. I didn't um, say that. No. I know you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> but I like the idea of curiosity, and, of course, a fantastic way of being curious is inventing characters and investigate because it's also playfulness over it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, to me, you know, I've always been, right from my first novel, mm. which is very much about the longing for transcendence and the ways in which the 60s mm. counterculture and the development of mass mm. media with the televising mm. of the Vietnam War in America, mm. the ways in which those historical facts kind of dovetailed with what I think of as an innate mm. human longing for transcendence. Mm. Um, I, I feel like for me, writing is what answers my longing for transcendence yeah. and reading. If you define transcendence as being lifted out of your, of, of being mm. elevated above your own experience, being pulled out of the ordinary, you know, that's what does it for me. That's why I do it. And I still get to live my life. Mm, it's not that I don't spend plenty of time making one, you know, grocery lists, believe mm. me. It's just that having, you know, having finished with that, I don't want to give it another thought. One could be envious, actually. Yeah. Why? No, because you say something about being transcendent. You can be transcendent without being religious. You can be an author. You invent people, you investigate, you go into different uh, perspectives. Yeah. It, it feels like the same thing to me. I mean, yeah. of course, we never know if we're really talking about the same thing. Yeah. I'm, I would mm. not call myself religious. No, without being religious. Yeah, yeah. no, yeah. I, I feel yeah. that... that I, but I do feel that that charged sense of, mm. of, of something larger kind of tingling all mm. around is what I get from writing and also reading. Um, that, those are... that. Literature is what gives me a spiritual life. I really feel that. It's very good to listen to. Yeah. It's, it's really fun to experience. Yeah. What should we other do? Uh, <laughs> we talked, not on this scene, but before, about empathy. And in a way, in a way this is a kind of empathic enterprise. I mean, uh, you invest a lot in other characters, although they are invented by you. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I feel like empathy is, empathy is my major tool, empathy mm. and extrapolation. Mm. Because if I'm not writing about myself, at least not knowingly, then I'd better start getting pretty empathetic or mm. I'm not going to be able to persuasively enter into other points of view. Um, and I, I find that I, I, I mean, empathy is, it's a, a very powerful tool. Um, and, and so I, I, I do feel that it's what I'm... I, I mean, we were saying earlier, I was saying earlier to you that I feel empathetic. I feel almost crushed by empathy sometimes in my real life. Um, it can be painful. I mean, it is painful to really think about how much pain other people are feeling, which is not imaginary. <laughs> um, so it becomes almost like looking at, at, you know, looking into, at the stars and, and having to just stop, really not even engage with the kind of enormity of 
what that really means to think about all that being out there. I sometimes feel that way about humanity. Mm. In fact, the stars leave me kind of cold, honestly. Mm. Like, I, yeah, it's incredible. I, I can't really, I can't, I can't even quite get to how incredible it is. I know it intellectually. But with human beings, I really feel it. Um, and so there will be days where, you know, and especially, you know, I mean, maybe this is, in a lot of America, it's amazing how few people you can really see. I mean, people drive everywhere. It's a, it, it, there's a, there, I mean, there are whole cities that barely have sidewalks. Um, so there's not a lot of engagement, but New York is precisely the opposite. I mean, and that's why I love it. I mean, one crowded subway ride, and if you're feeling too empathetic, I mean, you practically need to go to the doctor by the time you get off. <laughs> so it's, a, it's great. I love that. I love being confronted physically and viscerally with people whose lives are manifestly different from mine on a daily basis. It's great. But when writing, I mean, uh, being the inventor of a character, in a way, you have to be empathetic in a way, but uh, can you write a person that you really don't like? Oh, yeah, that's yeah. the best. <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, but, but it's interesting, this question of likability is huge. I mean, yeah. people are, at least in America, this question of are the characters likable is one you mm. hear a lot. I think it's a little bit of a misnomer, because yeah. I think when likability is standing in for... Um, well, there's a new word that I, can't, I loathe, but I'm just going to say it. Relatability. Oh, I hope that one isn't even in use here. No, um, never heard it. It's relatable. Mm. Oh, my God. Okay. Mm. Um, but I think, I guess my goal is always to, if I'm writing about someone who does things that I think are abhorrent, let's say, mm. um, my job is to make those choices not only comprehensible to the reader, but mm. inevitable. That's my job. If I can't do it, then I can't write about that person. Because everyone has their reasons for doing what they do mm. and for making the choices they make. Um, and everyone has uh, their own system that's guiding them, a sort of mental system, let's say. Uh, what I think of it is, as is um, habits of mind. And um, everyone has contradictions, which usually are the crux of who they are, I feel. At least I think about that a lot with characterization. I don't really think about it so much with actual people. Um, but, you know, the, the consistent character is just the kiss of death. Um, except when Jane Austen does it, because she's magic. Um, but generally, people who are consistent in literature are a big bore. Um, and so that I'm, I'm much more interested in the ways in which people don't make sense. That seems to kind of yield them up the fastest. And again, my goal is just get it done and keep moving. Um, keep moving, get them to do things. Let, let's just figure out who they are quickly and then get going. <clears throat> yes, you have complex characters. Anna is a complex character. These uh, gangsters, they are complex characters, all of them, yes. So you deliberately... I hope so. Yeah. I mean, anything less is a failure. Every, I, I, I mean, everyone's complicated. So my job is to render up their complications as efficiently as possible uh, and then get them moving so that we can see what happens. Yes, complexity is uh, fascinating and important in fiction and art, but 
very much so the popular culture tried to avoid complexity in many ways um, by idealizing uh, black and white. Do you also see, I don't, I don't like to ask this question, but it's, it's also kind of mission trying to tell how complicated people are in a way. I don't think of it that way. No, um, no I don't. Uh, but I know exactly what you're saying about yeah. the popular culture, and I, I'm mystified by it. I'm mystified by why it satisfies. I mean, genuinely, I think. So people are liking this. My job is not to judge that, but to enter... See, again, this is... My job is to understand that point of view. How is this satisfying? I can't... To just say you shouldn't be satisfied by that is ridiculous. You can't tell people what mm. to like. I have to figure out why they like it. It's doing something for them. What is it? That, then it becomes a mystery instead of a horror. This is another reason writing fiction is so great. Mm. <laughs> I feel that way about everything. You know, technology, mm. Donald Trump, it's all, if you just try to figure out why, then it's, it's, it's you know, it becomes tolerable. Curiosity. <laughs> yeah. Barely. <laughs> but no, curiosity in your writing, yes. Try to find out, try to understand. Well, mm. curiosity is literally what pulls me through a first draft, for example. Mm. So I write my first drafts by hand because I'm trying to, using my atrocious handwriting, which ultimately sometimes I can never read mm. in full, to to cre create a state of quasi-blindness mm. that allows me only to go forward. And it's, it's exactly the opposite of what I do as a journalist, where I'm writing on a screen and kind of reworking every line as I go to try to crystallize and synthesize a lot of things that I've already learned that I'm trying to make available to the reader. As a fiction writer, I'm doing almost the opposite. I don't know what I'm writing about yet. I don't know what the world of it is. I'm in a state of discovery. And curiosity is what pulls me through. So for Manhattan, it, now Goon Squad I wrote in smaller pieces, as is obvious from the result. Um, Manhattan Beach I wrote in one straight shot. The first draft was 1,400 handwritten pages. Uh, 27 legal pads, and there it was. You know, I just prayed we didn't have a fire before I got it typed up. <laughs> um, although after I typed it and read it, I almost wish we had had a fire <laughs> because it was horrible. It always is. You know, writing that way, what I gain is spontaneity and things that I wouldn't have been able to think of. What I lose is quality. Um, <laughs> So that has to come later, and then I begin a very complex yeah. and, and analytical, because I, I, I sometimes forget to talk about this part, and I sound like I'm just kind of hearing voices and writing it down, and, and there it is. No, then begin years of revision with mm. very detailed revision outlines, which are often, I think the first outline for Manhattan Beach was like 60 pages long. And that's just the outline of what I need to do to bring it up one big notch. And, to, and then going through it chapter by chapter, I would maybe do 15 revisions to bring it up enough to go on to the next chapter. And I go back through, and then I read it again, and hopefully the next, hopefully the horror is less, and the next outline is shorter. <laughs> and it just goes on like that until finally I'm ready to let other people read the whole draft which in the case of Manhattan Beach did not happen until August of 27, 2016. 
So then I got on a kind of fast track from that point. And maybe I needed a little extra time, I sometimes think, but too late. We have a clear impression that you do very serious research. I mean, um, this is um, the waterfront of Brooklyn and uh, New York. Uh, you create a diver. Did you start diving? No, I've never dived. No, so we have just research diving. Mm -hmm. And then you send ships out into the sea, like uh, other authors do. They have sea battles. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I know, I couldn't believe I couldn't believe it when I felt that coming that on. That you should write a sea battle, yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was, I think I kept that from myself until it was too late to quit. Mm. Um, yes, I resisted that strongly because, you know, Sea shipping is something some people, you might even say a lot of people, know a lot about. Mm. So it was frightening to take that on. I think the thing that made this book so incredibly challenging for me was that there was no world that I did know about that I was writing about. I was completely... Uh, I was empty-handed everywhere I went at the beginning. And that was really... Uh, I don't, I don't, scary is not the right word. It was just a state of extreme incompetence, um, which was, was, you know, difficult to sustain. And it lasted longer than I thought it would because what I found out was that writing about the past is not, as, I should have, I mean, if I'd really thought about this, I would have seen it coming, but it's not as simple as knowing what people wore or what kind of cigarettes they smoked. That's nothing. I mean, you can figure that out on Google in 20 minutes. But it's, we all bring to this moment our individual pasts and our collective pasts. And what, how we perceive it, it depends almost entirely on what those pasts consist of. So to write authoritatively about people of various ages at a different point in time, I have to understand wh what all of them are remembering Think, what are their points of reference, <laughs> individually and culturally? Without that, it, we're just in a vacuum. So there was so much more that I needed to know than I thought. Once I finally got there, it was an extraordinary thrill and joy because it felt like a degree of transport or transcendence, to use the word we were using earlier, that was more extreme and enveloping than any I'd experienced. It really did feel like kind of otherworldly. Um, and I, you know, I think I kind of, I, I think I'm hooked. I'm, I'm not going to stop doing that. That was really fun. Um, what does that mean that you are not stopping doing that? What, I mean, are, I, what are you continuing to do? I think I still want to, I think I want to, uh, do more historical fiction, yeah. at least one more outside of my lifetime. Mm. Uh, so, um, so that was what made it, that was really the most arduous part of the research in terms of familiarizing myself with various technical worlds about which mm. I kn knew nothing, that was intimidating. But I do think having had experience as a journalist helped me with that because I've many times been in that position and I know that how quickly sometimes what, through total immersion one can become briefly expert, <laughs> very briefly, um, in a complex topic. So I had faith that, that, that a kind of... Mm synthesis or a sort of cohesion of, of detail would occur. Um, but it took a long time before I felt comfortable 
functioning as as myself as a writer in the material that was another problem you know even when i felt like i i kind of knew a lot i felt like i was sort of stiff i wasn't really me on the page for a long time and that a, a, a really good analogy for that would be just trying to kind of be yourself in a language you don't know that well very hard um i remember when i was studying italian long ago and living in italy for the summer i realized that in in italian i was stupid <laughs> because i i really was i mean how do you judge i didn't get jokes i couldn't make jokes i couldn't follow a complex argument okay well what so then who who where is the me part of that to, from the point of view of an italian someone who only spoke italian i was a very limited human being um and so working on this book i was a very limited writer for quite a while yeah so you stressed the whole point of doing very very thorough research not only the time spirit but also knowing something about technology you say it was an internet free time but they had diving equipments and they had boats and they have industries and so you had to go into that yeah. i know it's so funny i you know it's true yeah. i i got rid of one kind of te technology but talk about yeah. out of the frying pan into the fire i mean It's a very wonky book in certain ways and I it's not that I'm really that into that kind of stuff honestly it's not like I look forward to getting a new machine and trying to figure out how it works I'm I'm kind of not very technical actually But do you enjoy it? I mean in life? No being trying to find out how to it's being a deep sea diver female deep sea diver during second world war i mean i did really enjoy it a yeah. lot mm. yes and it's funny but i don't know whether it's it's not that the technology per se no. interests me mm. it's that somehow knowing feeling that it is that it's going to deliver me into the fluency that i'm looking for yeah. makes it very alive it becomes so exciting to to know everything. And and again, that I I have experienced that many times as a journalist, but it I felt like there was nothing too technical for me. I mean, I could be on the at the gym on the elliptical machine reading a book called How to Abandon Ship, <laughs> getting strange looks from the person next to me about, you know, exactly how water was was stored and rationed on lifeboats in 1943 and and I would still have more questions. I would think well that's not quite enough. I still ha that's not going to do it. I got to get more. So it it had a it's about curiosity again. Having had that curiosity awakened, there was nothing was too detailed for my appetite. I'm very very sympathetic towards curiosity. I mean an infant couldn't survive if mother and father were not curious about the children i mean curiosity is a kind of humanity uh, the day we lose curiosity is very very serious and you are really really a curious person yeah i am i have to yeah, say yeah. i mean to maybe to a fault i like i um you know i hmm. i will i i'm nosy i'm i really am i eavesdrop i look in windows <laughs> i'm i'm that person I mean, I'll just keep going. If the door is unlocked, no, I wouldn't really. But I mean, I I really am extremely curious. That is a fact. <laughs> Very good. But the light is such there that she she doesn't see you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you say you don't want to you don't like to write about yourself, but you have personal background also to write about yourself. I mean, 
any particular important ones, do you think? Well, I mean, we all have our background. I mm. think, you know, what I use my background for is to help me... I mean, I, I, empathy is one crucial tool because it allows me to imagine points of view that are not my own. Uh, and then extrapolation is another hugely important tool. So here, here's an example. So yep. in the first chapter of A Visit from the Goon Squad, which I wrote thinking it was just a short story, um, I wrote about a, uh, someone stealing a wallet. The reason I wrote that was that I have been robbed at so many times. I, I should count. It's got to be at least 12 or 13. And so I understand the point of view of the person being robbed all too well. Um, but I, I'm very curious about the point of view of the thief. Mm. And so I, I think I, the more times I had been robbed, the more curious I became about robbers. Um, and so, so, but then there's even more empathy and extrapolation. So I knew I was going to write about a woman stealing another woman's wallet because the whole idea came to me when I was in a restroom in New York, looked down and saw a wallet sitting there and kind of, I had a kind of, cascade of memories of how many times I was the person leaving the wallet there or even having the wallet in my purse and boom, it was gone or the whole purse was gone. And so I kind of re reconnected with that curiosity about thievery, sat down and started writing in this automatic way that I've described and had no idea why the thief would be stealing until I was actually writing. And once I was starting to write, I was kind of glad that it wasn't the obvious motive, which would be poverty, an actual need for money. That's a, that's a very reasonable reason to steal. Um, but my reason turned out, this, this thief's reason, the reason I arrived at, was compulsion. Mm. It's actually not, has nothing to do with need except on a kind of psychological level. Now, I, so then I published that short, short story and people in our neighborhood with, with kind of feigned casualness said, so, is that, um, if, is that something you've experienced yourself? Being and, a kleptomaniac? Yes. yes. And yeah. I, thought, I, I thought, boy, you are really obvious because they're thinking, she's been in our house. Mm. We, maybe we should find out. Mm. And, um, and the answer was no. But who hasn't experienced compulsion of some kind? Mm. I mean, on the most basic level, doing something you know is not good for you because it gives you some kind, it's satisfying some kind of immediate need, but ultimately kind of undermining you. Um, and, I, you know, I can think of multiple ways that I know that feeling. And, and so I'm, and I also know nothing. I have never looked up, klept, I've never looked at DSM about kleptomania. I don't actually know what the criteria are. Maybe, maybe my character is not a good kleptomaniac, but I'm not really interested in diagnosis in fiction because I think it's really reductive. It is um, reductive. But, yeah. but I, so I'm extrapolating from yeah. what I know innately of compulsion mm. to write about a thief who, th who steals for that reason. So trying to get on the inside experience of being a compulsive thief. A yeah. Of being on the point of, from mm. the point of view opposite to my own and mm. hostile to my own. Mm. Because I'm, the th I'm always the one who gets robbed. <laughs> <laughs> Although it's it's really been happening less, I'm happy about that. I think I'm finally. You think getting... it's a kind of benefit that we are trying to minding the thief's mind that uh, no. they don't take the poses anymore. No, I don't know why I'm robbed so much <laughs> less. I think I mm. look like less of a target. I think it might be being older. <laughs> An advantage. <laughs> mm. 
Are you then interested in irrationality? I mean, being uh, self-destructive is being irrational in a way. Totally interested in that because, I mean, totally interested in being irrational. Yeah, yeah. because yeah. because it's so interesting. I <laughs> yeah, mean, it is. Here's mm. the challenge that's mm. so much fun. Mm. From there's no there's no such thing as irrationality mm. from inside the point of view of the person no, no, behaving. No. So. I need to eradicate that irrationality mm. and make it not only, just what I said before, not only invite the reader inside the mind of the person doing these seemingly irrational things, but, but find out for myself and others why those choices are the best choices and the only choices. You're making this a very good time for me because this is so important, trying to have a kind of inside perspective. Sometimes it's about surviving for people. Totally, yeah. often. Mm. Um, I mean, yes. Uh, you know, I mean, well, here's another example of just, I'm kind of free associating here, but again, back to Goon Squad. In, in, when I wrote that first chapter about the kleptomaniac, except I didn't know if that's what she was, there was a brief mention of her former boss, who's a record producer. I didn't even name him originally because he was nothing. He was just um, something mentioned. Who sprayed pesticide in his armpits and sprinkled gold flakes in his coffee. And I got a little chuckle as, I, as those details popped out as I was writing by, in longhand. This is why I do it. Because I thought, ah, yeah, he's a crazy record producer. We know they have eccentric habits. Um, but then after I p finished that story... That, those details sort of stuck in my mind and, the, and the, the easiness of saying, you know, eccentric record producer kind of nagged at me because I thought, you know, eccentricity, again, only exists from the outside. There is pure logic from the inside. Why does he do those things? And that, you know, that single question might be why I wrote A Visit from the Goon Squad. Mm. <laughs> because it, that's what turned one freestanding story into a kind of concatenation mm. of further stories, all of which were a response to curiosity about little details that seemed easy in the moment but seemed um, unsatisfying, ultimately. Mm. And so my question was, going into my story about the record producer, why does he do that stuff? We know he does it. Why are those good decisions? Why do they make sense? And so that's, you know, trying to get inside of him yeah. and answer those questions was what led to the next chapter of the book. Mm. We spoke about it. Um, I'm not trying to be private in a way, but we also spoke about some familiar experiences. Your brother had the problem, yes. Yeah, my brother mm. was schizophrenic. Yeah. Uh, he was my little brother. Um, he committed suicide in June of 2016 after a very long and tiring mm. life of trying to deal with hearing voices in his head all the time. Um, and he and I talked very frankly and openly about his situation. I mean, I asked him about his voices as if I, as I would ask someone else about their difficult relatives um, because these were, these were a part of his life and they... You know, they tormented him. Um, and it was, it was so difficult because it was as if, I mean, in the end, it, it's such a reminder of how alone we all are. Because even if you love someone so much and you're holding them and encompassing them with your love, 
you cannot pull them out of the world they inhabit into your world. It's such a, it's such a tragedy. It might very well be a great tragedy. Uh, the first psychiatrists in England 300, 400 years ago, they were called alienists because they were working with aliens, not being an alien like in the film, but the sense of being in, on another planet. I mean, the whole problem with getting in contact. Yeah. So that's a painful way of being irrational that you are, you're not in the same physical realm and psych psychic realm. Like no, this. no, it's so difficult mm. for, for that person. Mm. I mean, and so, you know, people do crazy things which are completely reasonable. Yeah. So, for example, my brother, who was amazingly articulate at describing and even howling with laughter over the things he did. I mean, we were going to write a screenplay. We always said it. And at a certain point, I kind of knew we wouldn't, but we still said it, which would just be a, a comedy, <laughs> for sure, about someone like him and the ridiculous things that end up happening. Um, and so, but one, one story, but, you know, of course, they were never funny in the moment because that was when he was experiencing them. But there was one period when he was really unmedicated as a young man where he had this idea that he was going to drive, he was going to enter another world, exactly as you say, but he had to find the right portal. I mean, it's like living in science fiction. And he had decided that there was this one very narrow bridge which was the portal. And if he drove over it at exactly the right moment, he would be transported into this other realm. And so he drove over this bridge again and again and again. Well, of course, the police began to notice this. <laughs> and they thought, why is this person doing this? So they're coming from a completely different, a law enforcement, okay, habits of mind, like I said. They're thinking he's up to no good. I mean, my grandfather was a cop, and there's a famous story of him just standing on the street watching people going by, and my uncle said, what are you doing, Dad? And he said, just trying to separate the good guys from the bad guys. <laughs> <laughs> so they see my brother driving over this bridge again and again, a young guy, a good-looking guy, and they think, uh-oh, okay. So there's a school near the bridge. And they think, okay, this has something to do with the school. He's, gonna, he's, he's planning something about these children. He was doing it at night because if he did it during the day, there were too many cars and he wasn't going to be able to get over the bridge at exactly the right moment. So you know where this goes. The police pull him over. He's incredibly paranoid and like freaking out. And, and it is sort of comic if you think about it that way. But it's also, it's agony. So his life was full of these things, and it was very, very tiring. But one thing that was so strange was how much alike we were. And he would, again, we would joke about this. I mean, he would say, I can't believe this. You're, you're hearing voices, and you have a career based on that. <laughs> and I'm hearing voices, and I can barely get out of bed in the morning. Like, that's not fair. And it really wasn't. But it was amazing how close our, our minds were, actually. It was a tiny degree of difference, really. We all listen to what you say, yes. That's important. Mm. Concerning this empathic enterprise, I mean, it's about writing, but what about reading uh, characters? I mean, in a way, can that be useful for us? I sure think so. I mean, I think yeah. there are even studies that say that reading is, um, encourages empathy 
Um, and it worries me terribly that, you know, I mean, I watch, we were talking about my teenage sons. Um, I, I feel like if I had a dollar for every YouTube video they watched, I would not need to ever do another thing. I mean, and I, I think, you know, how, I, I, it's very difficult to hold on to curiosity and not just enter into pure judgment over that stuff. Because what I viscerally feel is, you know, the culture is going to hell. What am I going to do? I have to stop it. That's not really helpful to anyone. Um, and certainly not, it doesn't you know, help enhance my relationship with my children. Um, but I, I do think that visual culture is often less empathetic. I, I mean, by definition. You know, it's, it's, it is showing people from the outside. And, and if it's done suggestively, it can suggest all kinds of things about their inner lives. I don't mean to diminish that. And I love photography. I love film. I'm, I love the visual arts. But there is something about actually persuasively being placed inside the mind of another person that I think really is unique. Um, I've, been reading, I've been reading Trollope uh, for yeah. quite a while now, and I, I actually li I love listening to audiobooks. I have one particular reader for Trollope that I adore, David Shaw Parker. Oh, my God. He's incredible. Um, but I walk down the street, and I'm just... I'm like my brother. I'm like shouting with laughter because of something I'm hearing, which, you know, luckily for me is David Shaw Parker, um, you know giving me entrance into all of these different minds that Trollope is writing about. Um, it, it's just, it's such great entertainment. I, I, I don't know, I, for me it's so addictive. And you say, if I'm listening correctly, that there is a difference uh, between a book and a film. I mean, uh, in the film you stand from the outside and look inside. In the book, in a way, you are more in, on the inside. It's, it seems to be a difference of kind that yeah. is profound. Mm. Um, and it's, it's interesting to think. I mean, we, we become more and more visual. Mm. We, I'm sure we, every one of us has a phone, an iPhone, or some, something like that mm. with us. Um, and, you know, it's, it, it, uh, we're looking at images every second. I mean, I was thinking about image culture when I wrote my first book, and all I was thinking, and that was pre-internet, and I was thinking about how profoundly it had changed our relationship to ourselves. So what does it mean to be looking at images so much of the time? I don't know the answer, um, but I'm very curious. Yeah, it's good being curious. Um, one could take one perspective. It's like me being uh, an old skeptical man. I mean... Um, being uh, a bit anxious and afraid, but of course there are important changes. Uh, and, well, to use those kinds of research, um, I think 14,000 American college students have been followed during three decades, and they have been questioning, they've been filling out uh, some uh, surveys, and one of the Questions is about empathy, the capacity of being empathic. Another is perspective taking, taking the other's perspective, like you do in your characters. You take the perspective of Anna, and they say it's a huge decline in 30 years. So that could be the pessimistic way, uh, but yeah. in a way we have to be hopeful. But it's a kind of no narrowing perspective, and it's also research saying reading novels, if it's the good kind of novel. Uh, enhances empathy. It 
some research said it should be a bit um, difficult novel. It shouldn't be obvious how it ends. <laughs> so you should have to work some, yes. Right, yeah. right. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know what to make of all of it. And, um, I, you know, I do have a lot of faith in human beings. I do think we're unbelievably adaptable and resourceful, mm. and we always underestimate that about each other. Um, so I... I um, I do feel hopeful as well, but I, I do I feel concerned. And one thing is, I, I, I mean, actually, to you know, it's so easy to say you should read more. Um, but I also feel like people, it's really up to the writers to make that essential. I mean, if reading becomes something we should do, like taking vitamins, we're finished. I mean, that's it. <laughs> but if reading is giving people something they can't get any other way, they will want to do it. And that's the only right reason for anyone to do this stuff. You know, it is entertainment. Um, so I feel the, a, a sense of responsibility because I feel like I'd bloody well better write some good stuff because there's a lot of other, there are so many other things people could do. Why should they want to read me? It's not their job, you know? I, I, I have to write something that people feel is, you know, does the things that I care about as a reader, first of all, entertains, pulls people in, gives that feeling of being lifted out of one's own life into another world, feels encompassing, um, and ideally has a, an engagement with the present world that is relevant enough that one feels somehow altered or opened in some way that is exciting. That's what I better do. And I, I, I think that, you know, that's the way we writers have to look at it. It, it. It's amazing how often one can slip into a complaining mode. Oh, people don't read. You know, it's not their job to want to read us. <laughs> it's our job to write stuff that's so good that they have to. <laughs> Dear Jennifer Egan, I think that's the perfect way to stop it. <laughs> Thank you so much. You. You've been listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more episodes and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and our website. The music is by Apotek.